Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulton. I'm a professor. I'm a podcast host. I help my wife farm. But most of all, I'm very interested in science communication and particularly the choices we make around food. And it's an excellent prelude for today's guest. So we're speaking with uh, Jack Bobo. He's the CEO of Fortuity or for for you know, I can't even say that. Futurity. Fu- yeah. yeah, futurity. Sounds like a made up word, but it's not. <laughs> futurity, a uh, food foresight company. So uh, l- let's start out there, Jack. You know, uh, first, welcome to the podcast. And, you know, what is it that, uh, that you do as a food foresight professional? Sure. So I am the CEO of Futurity, which is a food foresight company. I work with food tech startups and big food brands, helping them to understand what does the future of food look like, where are consumer trends and attitudes going, and how do organizations get ahead of trends so they don't get run over by them. Yeah, that's really cool. It sounds like a lot of fun because uh, you know these things are, as your book, and we'll talk about your book today, why pe- why smart people make bad food choices. Uh, it really is a, an important book that covers this intersection between the, the food landscape and the food environment, but also the mistakes we make in terms of our biases. And it was a really, uh, really interesting read and a relatively fast read. Uh, but let's go back to your background in this. So you had, uh, tell, tell me, tell us a little bit about your background growing up in Indiana, but also the time you spent with State Department. Sure. Well, I grew up in southern Indiana, and I tell people I didn't grow up on a farm, but we did have cornfields that came all the way to my backyard. Uh, But my family did have a garden, and our garden is perhaps a little different than people think about gardens today because, you know, we had a few rows of corn and peppers and cantaloupes and strawberries and green beans, and uh, my mother canned everything. We had our tomatoes, and, you know, we were pretty much self-sufficient in food. I tell people that we were all organic because we had child labor, which was me and my brothers. And, you know, it was uh, an interesting way to grow up. I mean, I never actually thought that I was involved in agriculture because I I saw agriculture at scale. Um, But looking back, I actually was much more deeply embedded in it than I might have expected. And, you know, I went off to college. I studied psychology, chemistry, biology, was a Peace Corps volunteer in Central Africa, came back and did a master's degree in environmental science and law. And that's really what led me to my interest in how do we improve or how do we protect the global environment? And that led me to a job at the US Department of State where I spent 13 years working on global food policy. And I I quickly learned that the best way of protecting the environment was by working with agriculture uh, because in many ways, agriculture has the biggest impact on the environment, but it's also the most critical thing we do every day. 
Well, it's very true. I mean, we have to eat food from somewhere and being able to do that sustainably is a real fine line sometimes. And the, the I guess the thing that makes it really a conundrum is, uh, and maybe I'm jumping the gun here, but a, a lot of the food that we grow in agriculture goes towards ingredients that are used in processed foods. And, you know, and then how much of that is really true? Well, you know, a, a fair amount of the food uh, that we produce does end up in processed foods. But, you know, I think in some ways processed food has a bad reputation because, you know, there is a reason that we process food and it, you know, by freezing food, we're able to lock in the nutrients. And so that can be a benefit. Uh, processing can help uh, reduce food waste. Uh, it can make food more affordable. Uh, so there are a lot of things that are good about uh, processed foods. Uh, but then, you know, there are also things that have led to some of the obesity epidemics and other things that we're going to be talking about later. So as in most things in life, there are trade-offs, <laughs> there are pros and cons. And our goal is how do we maintain and grow the benefits and reduce the negatives, um, as with everything. No, that's very good. Yeah, I did kind of jump the gun there a little bit because I, I didn't want to get too much into the grocery store side of things just yet. But let's talk about um, the problem. And, you know, you mentioned the obesity epidemic. What is the obesity epidemic? Where is it happening? And what are its associated costs? Yeah, well, it's hard to believe, but about 42% of all Americans today are obese, and we're on our way to 50% by 2030 if we don't do something about it. And while we sometimes think of this as a uniquely American problem, uh, the problem has gotten dramatically worse in pretty much every corner of the world, including in places like Africa and India and China and places where you know we might think that there's still hunger, and there is, um, but there's also this growing problem of obesity. And what's surprising to many is just how quickly the, pro the problem arose. If we go back to just 1975, and that's you know, about 45 years ago, uh, and you looked at obesity rates in Europe, they were actually higher than the obesity rates in the United States. We had about 9% in the United States and 10% in, in Europe at the time. Now things are dramatically worse here in the US, but it's not because America has always been a country where you know people were overweight or obese. Um, it's some, a relatively new phenomena, and you know the costs in terms of healthcare and quality of life and other things are are just really dramatic and getting worse. And that's why we need to do something about it. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question about it being a new phenomenon. I've, I've read before. I think in Diet for a Small Planet years ago, that before World War II or right after World War II, the biggest problem was malnutrition and that obesity was, uh, they at least, that author stated that obesity was a response because the government started to develop things like the four food groups and that you had to start eating more of things that were high in fat and more of things that were correcting the malnutrition problem. Is there any sense to that? Or, you know, why exactly did we start to have an onset of obesity? Yeah, it, it's an interesting, uh, you know, history. And I, I really uh, dove into that when I was writing the book. And, you know, be, if we go back, you know, just to 1960 or so, I mean, there, there was no obesity epidemic, you know, we didn't even see it coming. And in some ways, 
America's appetite for supersized portions can be traced back to the mad genius of one man. And you know, this occurred back in the, the 1960s. And there was a challenge that this person had in terms of how do you get people to eat more popcorn at the grocery stand? Or at, you know, at a, not at the grocery, uh, but at a movie theater. And so his job was to figure out how do we get people to eat more popcorn? And he tried everything, two for one deals and other things in order to get people uh, to go back and eat more. And you know, it just turned out that it was really difficult. And it finally occurred to him, he thought, you know, maybe the reason that people don't want to buy more popcorn is because they're embarrassed that they would look gluttonous if they were to go back and get more popcorn. And so what he did is he uh, offered the jumbo size popcorn. And that turned out to be, you know, a remarkably good thing to do because not only did the popcorn sales take off, but everything in the, uh, you know, at the concession stand uh, took off. And when what he found was that, you know, this just had a, a big impact on what everybody's eating everywhere. And so then he went off to work for uh, McDonald's Corporation and he was talking to Ray Kroc and trying to convince him, you know, you need to offer uh, a large popcorn or a large uh, French fries. And Ray Kroc's like, you know, if people want more fries, they'll just go back for it, back for a second bag. And of course, you know, that that turned out not to really be true. And it wasn't until 1972 that he was able to convince uh, McDonald's to offer a larger size uh, French fry. And of course, the rest is history. You know, it took off not just at McDonald's, but everybody sort of got on this bandwagon that larger portion sizes uh, were important and, you know, could increase sales. So that's like one thread of this, you know, how did we get here? And that, that person was David Wallerstein. Um, but then at the same time, you mentioned uh, what the government was recommending. And so at a very similar time in the, the late 1970s, that's when the U.S. government was trying to figure out how to develop dietary guidelines. And they had been really successful at promoting nutrition to address very specific problems, you know, deficiencies in vitamin D and vitamin C and other things. And so they wanted to provide more uh, information to the public. And there was a, actually a struggle that was going on. Should they focus on sugar or they should, should they focus on fat as the culprit? And in the end, they chose to focus on dietary fat as the problem. And what happened is that as soon as they told people, you know, you should be eating less fat, food companies responded and they said, well, we'll just offer low fat options. And, you know, that seems like a great thing. I mean, that seems like exactly what we want companies to do. People should eat more, uh, less fat. So let's give them a low fat option. But what they weren't thinking about is human psychology. And human psychology looks at that product and says, hey, if this is low fat, it must be good for me. And if it's good for me, I should eat more of it. <laughs> and so instead of just eating, you know, one low fat cookie, which is what you might have done if it was a regular cookie, you know, people eat the whole bag. And, you know, that's leads into some of the psychology that I talk about in the book is that there were these unintended consequences of efforts to make people healthier, 
ended up boomeranging and ended up making people less healthy. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And the book kind of gives uh, example of example after this. The other one was, uh, and I remember this in my lifetime, we're probably about the same age. I remember um, when you went to McDonald's or you went to 7-Eleven, you could buy a Coke and it was a small little cup, maybe 12 ounces. You know, it was like a large, a 16 ounce when that came out seemed huge. And I used to work with a guy when I was 16 that we worked in school buses in the middle of the summer. It was blazing hot. And he'd get two of those 16-ounce cups every day for lunch, you know, at lunch, because that's the biggest one you could get. But then they started to come up with this idea of uh, supersized big gulp type drinks. And then give us a little hint on the history of that one, because that was supposed to fail. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, so, you know, you mentioned a 12-ounce. Soda. But in 1953, uh, when you know McDonald's was getting started, and I was just out in LA a, a couple of weeks ago, and I visited the third or the oldest McDonald's in America's out there in LA, um, built in 1953, you would have gotten a seven ounce soda. So that was a an adult size serving of a Coke with seven ounces, and it was really uh, Pepsi uh, and Burger King that offered the 12 ounce in order to try to outcompete. Uh, you know, the Coca-Cola deal with McDonald's. But in terms of what we think of uh, as the big gulp and supersizing, uh, that also originated out there in California in Orange County, just south of uh, LA. And they that's where 7-Eleven was. And it was actually a struggling uh, business at the time. And they were visited by a representative for Coca-Cola who said, hey, I've got this new cup. I'd like you guys to give it a try. And the guy looked at it and he's like, you know, that's 32 ounces. You know, our, our biggest cup is only about 20 ounces or 24 ounces at the time. And, you know, he said, there's just no way anybody's going to buy it. And the guy said, look, I'll give you the whole box. Give it a try. Let me know what happens. And so he took the box of 500 cups, uh, went out to the rest or to the store that was the biggest seller of soda, gave it to them, said, give it a shot. A week later, the guy called back, who was the manager of that 7-Eleven, and said, hey, we're, we sold out. You know, give us some more. And, of course, they realized that um, they were on to something. And that's what really launched the, the big gulp movement in the United States and, uh, you know, again, around the world. And so it turns out that, you know, Americans are, and people everywhere are incredibly susceptible to perceived value. If you give them more for just a few pennies more, um, they will buy it. And it just doesn't matter how bad, how big it gets. They will keep coming back for more. <laughs> well, that's one of the psychology, uh, one of the elements of psychology that you discuss. The other one, though, is the uh, perceived value in terms of its healthfulness. And you talked about experiments by Leah Crum and her colleagues that talked about milkshakes and how you packaged the same thing had a huge effect on people's perception. And could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, this is, uh, I always tell people, this is my favorite uh, oh, title for a research paper of all time. It was called Mind Over Milkshakes. And there were two actually really interesting outcomes from that. The first is the one that you mentioned, that it turns out that um, if you give people a milkshake and it's the same milkshake, but one group gets a milkshake labeled low fat and the other one gets a milkshake labeled indulgent, that the people that get the one labeled low fat will just enjoy it less. 
And there's actually a lot of research that shows as soon as you say something is healthy, people just don't like it as much, <laughs> um, even if it's not really healthier, you know, they just expect to enjoy it less. And so in the mind, they do. Um, they actually experience it as not being as good. Um, but the thing that uh, was identified in this research was not just that we enjoy it less, but when they looked at the, uh, the body chemistry, what's happening when you eat something that you think is low fat versus what happens when you think that it's this indulgent shake is that our body responds differently physiologically. And this kind of blows your mind is that if your body thinks that it's drinking a low fat shake, it actually won't sort of kick in and say, okay, I'm, I'm full and therefore you should stop consuming. Uh, and so you will end up being hungry longer if you're drinking these shakes. So you could drink a lot more of a, what you believe is a low fat shake. Um, and, you know, alternatively, if you think it's an indulgent shake, your body thinks that it's full much sooner and has a different physiological response. And why this is important is because you have all of these people that are out there, you know, eating low fat meals or eating, um, you know, meals that are supposed to be healthy for them, but their brain is thinking, this is not going to be enough. So even if there are enough calories in it, because you think that it's a diet meal, your body is just not going to be as satisfied with it. And so that's part of the reason why, you know, people an hour later feel like, oh, I need to go and snack. It's not that they didn't have enough calories. It's that they actually tricked their brain into thinking they didn't have enough calories. <laughs> so is the real trick for us to is, is, and maybe I'm hitting a punchline here, but is it really just a question of us tricking ourselves the other direction? Because really what I would, you know, when I have a something to drink or something to eat for me, I can uh, eat something and stop. And, you know, a lot of other folks I know just keep on going because they just never hit satiety. But for me, it's, I mean, I can kind of pay attention to those little impulses and say, this is enough for now, just because I know what makes me put on weight. Yeah. You know, some of us are able to do that, but the vast majority of us aren't. And people who could do it 10 years ago can't do it anymore, right? Because, you know, the, the rates of obesity have just increased so much that there were people who thought that they were like you, um, but over time, there are fewer and fewer of them. So there are things that some, uh, you know, food manufacturers are doing. I mean, one thing they learned is that, uh, you know, in trying to reduce sodium in soups and other uh, frozen foods and things like that, you know, if you tell the consumer that you have reduced the sodium, they just won't like your product and they won't buy it anymore. But if you reduce the sodium and you don't tell them what's called stealth health, then they're perfectly fine with it. So, you know, we do need to think about the psychology in trying to help people be healthier. Sometimes you can't actually tell them what you're doing uh, or you can't describe it in the same way. But, you know, your, your point, though, about, you know, being able to control our, you know, how much you eat, that's just part of how our food environment has changed over time. You know, because people in 1960 did not have more willpower than people today. It's just that today there are so many more food choices. Our, our plates are so much larger. You know, a, a 
1960, your dinner plate was maybe nine inches. Today, it's 12 and you go to a restaurant and it could be much larger than that. You know, you have a 12 or a 13 inch plate and you can fit between 50 and 100% more food on that plate. And it really won't look much different than it did on that smaller plate. So you just don't even know how much you're eating. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. You know, that's the same principle why I always order the large pizza because the value per square inch, (laughs) you know, I'm still a value (laughs) shopper. But one of the other things you talk about a lot in the book, which was really an eye opener for me, I I kind of heard of this before, but um, the idea of how decision fatigue and the the how, how we respond to the psychology of the grocery store and the way it's laid out that the things that are maybe the bad food choices they put in places where we're already worn out from making choices so things like you know beer and ice cream tend to be at the end of the <laughs> end of the store right can you talk a little bit more about those kinds of uh, psychological tricks in the grocery store yeah, you know, there, there is a lot of psychology that goes into designing a, a modern grocery store. Uh, but there's also just the, the changes that have taken place in society, you know, since the early 1980s. A, a grocery store today has tens of thousands more food choices than a grocery store in 1980. And the more choices you have to make, the more tired you will be. And there's a lot of psychology that shows that mental fatigue, you know, just being worn out after a long day of work leads to worse food choices. Um, So mental fatigue, you know, will just make it worse. But also then there's decision fatigue, which is a subset, which means the more choices you have to make, the worse your decisions will get. Well, I mean, that is what a grocery store is all about, right? You know, you're making decisions all the time, you know, at the beginning of the grocery store, as you said, you're trying to decide between broccoli and cauliflower. And by the end, you know, you've got the ice cream and then you get to the checkout aisle and there's all of that candy. And you're thinking, man, this has been a really tough hour. I really deserve to reward myself. And so it's just not surprising that, you know, we toss in some of those snacks at the end. And of course, you know, um, Food companies are paying to have their products in different places in the grocery store. The end caps are a premium. And so um, the kinds of things that you find in those places are because somebody, you know, was uh, paid to, to be there. And so, so it is challenging for people. And it's also important to remember that it's even more challenging for people that are on a fixed food budget because, you know, there are many people and, you know, I'm one of them that, you know, I don't have to think that hard about how much I'm spending at the grocery store. I can kind of choose the products that I want. But if you're on a fixed food budget, you're not just choosing, you know, the organic asparagus or, or whatever it might be, you know, you're trying to balance the number of servings and the, you know, the cost and the size and the, uh, you know, all of these different things that somebody who, you know, is not, in that same financial situation just doesn't have to worry about. So it's not just not having as much money, it's that it's just a lot harder to make those decisions uh, for those people. Yeah, and we'll come back talking about some of the other uh, areas in which economics affects our food choices when we come back on the other side of the break. We're talking to Jack Bobo, he's the CEO of Futurity, and he's we're talking about his new book, 
Why Smart People Make Bad Food Choices. And it's, well, I said new book, but it is relatively new, right? When, when did it come out? Uh, it just came out on May 11th. Oh, so okay. It's <laughs> okay. I, yeah, cause I, it seems like I saw news of it quite a while ago and I put it on my radar. So I, it's really cool that I'm able to talk to you about it. So this is the Talking Biotech Podcast. We'll come back in just a minute and we'll talk a little bit about biotech too. Happy birthday to the Talking Biotech Podcast. This podcast was spawned in 2015, right after Fulta appeared on the Joe Rogan Experience. Rogan suggested that Fulta would be a decent podcast host and viola. Here we are six years later, 290-some episodes and approaching 1.5 million downloads which is what Joe Rogan gets in a single day, but hey, this is a niche audience. You see, monkeying with the threads of life to accomplish new feats in human health and food security is just the tip of the iceberg. Today's topics could not even be predicted back in 2015. The best days of biotechnology are in front of us, and the Talking Biotech Podcast will keep you at the cutting edge of innovations. Now back before episode 200, Fulta contemplated putting a lid on the theories. There was pressure from his employer to stop, and a weekly podcast is a significant commitment, so between internal and external forces, the podcast seemed to be coming to an end. Most podcasts with similar followings have major production teams, website gurus, and search engine optimization specialists but not the Talking Biotech Podcast. We decided to continue to move on towards the future with no end in sight, because the science keeps getting better. Going forward, we'll continue this critical conversation between experts and listeners, people like you that are willing to learn more and share the beautiful stories of scientific innovation with others. Thank you for your loyalty and continued support. Now forward into year seven. Now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. I'm speaking with Jack Bobo. He's the CEO of Futurity and author of the book, Why Smart People Make Bad Food Choices. And one of the things that's really cool about this book is it was really a review of the highlights of a number of authors that I follow frequently, and I've read quite a bit because I'm very interested in the psychology of decision-making and choices. And you talk about Kahneman, and then you had uh, Malcolm Gladwell stuff uh, referenced and quite a few really important books. And how do our choices, how are our choices really affected by psychology and how is that manipulated against us in in the food questions? Well, you know, it's really everything. You know, we have influences on us, you know, almost every moment of the day from the time we get up until the time we go to bed. And so we're inundated with these different uh, environmental factors that are nudging us, you know, every moment to eat a little bit more, to uh, consume more. And it's so much more difficult today to eat healthy and have a, you know, nutritious, uh, Oh, consumption patterns than it ever was in history. I mean, people are obviously work more than they used to. They're busier than they used to. 
but they're also inundated with more and more messaging and you know choices than they ever have been as well. Yeah, I think that's really important, especially when we start looking at uh, one important issue I wanted to talk to you about. Look at the issue of, or could you discuss the issue of how food choices and fear of food, especially fear of fruits and vegetables, uh, adversely affects the less economically advantaged consumer? Yeah, so in the book, I talk a little bit about you know, something called the Dirty Dozen, which is the list of the 12 fruits and vegetables that have the highest number of residues of pesticides on them. And, you know, I, I think everybody you know wants to avoid uh, consuming pesticides, so it's not at all surprising that people are, are worried about that. Um, but, you know, it's important for consumers to recognize as well that the residues on food are by and large perfectly safe. Um, you know, having a lot of residue, uh, not a large number, uh, may sound scary, but it doesn't necessarily make a product unsafe. Uh, but one of the problems is that while giving this information to consumers and transparency is critically important may seem like a good thing, for many consumers, it's actually hard to keep track of what's being told to them, you know, which uh, fruits and vegetables have residues on them. And so there's actually been some interesting research to say, well, what happens when you give people this kind of information um, and then they go shopping? And what they found is that information like that can actually uh, lead uh, shoppers in sort of a lower socioeconomic class to simply buy fewer fruits and vegetables. And it could be because they just can't remember <laughs> which ones they're supposed to be avoiding, um, but also it's just making them leery uh, fruits and vegetables that, you know, people are saying that they're unsafe. And it's, it's really important that people understand that while avoiding pesticide residues, you know, can be a good thing, it's more important that you just eat your fruits and vegetables. Um, and, you know, that's a message that, you know, just can't be repeated enough that, you know, people will, may end up having a less healthy basket of food because they're trying to avoid these pesticides than they would have if they had just bought you know, whatever it was that they had intended to buy in the first place. Yeah, it's really a, uh, a testament to our inability to govern risk very well. And that people will think that that trace amount of some sort of pesticide is somehow less deleterious than, you know, a box of cookies that you would choose instead of fruit and vegetables because of fear of that pesticide. But, you know, you've mentioned a few other things in your book about clean eating and the clean food movement and this kind of stuff. How, how good is the food supply and how safe is it? Well, it's remarkably safe. So, I mean, you know, that's something that everybody should understand is that, you know, our food has never been safer. Uh, the reason that the Food and Drug Administration uh, exists is because 100 years ago, our food was not particularly safe. There was adulteration, there was spoilage, there were all of these things. Um, and today, you know, we don't have, you know, there's still problems with food safety, but, you know, it, it is not at all uh, like it was before. Um, food is generally safe. And today, you know, there's an effort to reduce the number of food additives and uh, preservatives and other things in food. And, you know, the reason that we're able to do that today is because we have eliminated so many of those uh, food safety problems in the past. But, you know, we need to recognize that preservatives are there, one, to enhance food safety, 
but two, to reduce food waste. And so, you know, consumers should feel reasonably good about the safety of our food, and they should actually recognize that preservatives uh, provide an important function. You know, they, they make our food more affordable, they make our food safer, they reduce food waste, all things that I think most consumers are very much in support of. And how do people like, uh, you know, the food babe and other folks who are, you know, spreading fear around food, how do they get so much traction and how do fad diets get so much traction when, I mean, are people just reaching for something that confirms their, their bias about, you know, fearing food? Why do, why do, I guess, why do people want to fear food? Well, you know, I, I like to say that, you know, people have sort of a level of uh, concern uh, about food in general, and it doesn't matter how much, how safe it gets, they're still going to worry because we all sort of worry to our own level. And so, um, you know, we look for things to worry about if we don't have anything to worry about. And, you know, as our food has come, become safer, we focused on smaller and smaller risks. And because of that, when we hear something, you know, there's just no amount of risk that we're willing to take, you know, for our children. Uh, it's the difference between uh, hazard and risk, really, because most of us are not very good at understanding risk because risk is hazard times exposure in terms that a regulator would normally use. And we're good at understanding hazards. We're not good at understanding risk. And I'll, I'll give a couple of examples. You know, a shark in the ocean is a hazard. And if you go swimming in the ocean, you have exposure and that becomes a risk. But if the shark's in the ocean and you're standing on the beach, it's not a risk. And so we can kind of get that one. But if I tell you that something can cause cancer, well, that's the same as saying it does cause cancer. It doesn't matter if I tell you in real world circumstances that it, it never causes cancer. In theory, it can, but it doesn't actually. It doesn't matter. Once you use the word cancer, you can't unring that bell. And that's just, again, how our minds operate. And so, you know, we need to, to sort of be aware of that, um, but it's very hard. Yeah, it's a, it's a big issue for anything that has a hazard and the level is non-zero. Right. <laughs> and, and, right. and that's the thing that I'm up against as a scientist and someone who tries to communicate realistic risk in trace chemistry is we're really good at detecting parts per trillion, parts per billion of some of these compounds. And so when you tell people there's 330 parts per billion, which is what, 300 and, you know, a couple of minutes and 32 years, you know, equivalent, uh, they still go, yeah, but that's a little too much for my kid. <laughs> you know, and, and right. so so that's really what we're up against in terms of trying to manage the risk. And what's the best way for us to try to communicate that uh, in an effective way? Have you had any big successes? Well, you know, a lot of it comes down to trust. Uh, you know, I I've told people that if people don't trust you, science doesn't matter. And if people do trust you science doesn't matter. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, you know, if you don't trust me and I try to tell you that, you know, this chemical is safe and I've got a thousand studies that prove I'm right, you just don't care because you don't trust me. So why would you even look at the science? On the other hand, if you do trust me and I say that this chemical is safe, 
you don't need to see the science because you trust me already. And so the science itself, you know, you almost never get to the point where people are digging into the science. It's really based on their, their level of trust in the person who's communicating that topic. And, you know, that, that's unfortunate for those of us who really love science because, you know, we're perfectly happy to dive into those topics. Um, but it's also why, you know, people like yourself need to engage in these conversations uh, because people need to hear from people that they trust. Now, you're exactly right. I, I've talked about this for a decade at least. And what's so funny is I've never heard it phrased that way. You know, that the science doesn't matter, the science doesn't matter. That's a really astute way to put it because uh, I've always just said it, that all they want to know is, is it safe? You know, and, and, you know, let's say an example of a tomato in the grocery store and, you know, I'll see somebody shaking their head and saying, I don't want to buy this because it's covered in pesticides. And I'll say, you know, it's, you know, and I'll explain, you know, what I do and where, you know, that I know about these things. And, and once they know that it doesn't matter what the science says, it just matters that they heard from an authority that they trust who is just somebody who doesn't mind their business in the produce section. <laughs> um, but, but I, but I do those conversations all the time, you know, and, and, and it's really cool. Right. Um, one of the other places though, and this is you know interesting in your book, you pull a lot of quotes from a couple of people who have very reasonable quotations in your book that are consistent with the spirit of the book, but people who at times have really kind of eroded the trust in modern food. So you had uh, folks like Michael Pollan and Marion Nessel, who, you know, both of them have, have done a nice job at, you know, creating a little bit of uh, consternation around people's feelings towards foods. So, you know, do you have any thoughts on, on them and their con contributions to your work? Yeah. So, uh, you know, the people that I've included, I, I included sort of intentionally and recognizing where uh, some of those concerns are. And part of it is that in the book, I'm trying to reach a variety of audiences. And some of those audiences are, are people who are, uh, are followers of the work of Michael Pollan or Marion Nessel and you know, recognize them as authorities. And you know, the, having that information then can, they can be more of an authority on some of these topics than, than myself. And so that, that's part of the reason that I'm uh, pointing to them, but also because we're, we're trying to um, bring the conversation back to a, uh, in some ways, the, the middle where we can talk about these and we can disagree over some things. Uh, so it's, it's important to have, you know, to cast a broad net and have a variety of different perspectives uh, in this particular book, because it really shows that on a topic like this, there's really broad consensus about the points that I'm making. And, you know, I, I wanted to make sure that that was, uh, you know, reflected in there. And somebody like Mary Nessel, I mean, this is really her area of expertise. And some of the things uh, where, you know, you would probably disagree with her, you know, in some ways are, are not her area of focus. And the same thing with Michael Pollan. Yeah, no, it's it's a good point. I just I, I just noticed that they came up quite a few times, and and I thought, you know, some of these folks have just given me personally have gone after me, you know, and caused me fits. But um, let, let's talk about solutions, and you know, some of the ways in which we could use the reframing of our thinking of food to try to nudge the population in the right direction 
of maybe healthier food choices. Could you talk a little bit about the Billion Calorie Project and you know and how that may play a role in solving the problem? Sure. And uh, before I do, let me just give a, a couple of minutes on sort of behavioral science because the the last third of the book, you know, was really about okay, if our minds are working against us and our environment is working against us, you know, what hope do we have? And there are, are books out there like Nudge by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein that talk about how to use behavioral science, cognitive science and behavioral economics uh, to nudge people to better decisions. And uh, so there was a lot of great work that's been done in, and in the food world as well. And so, you know, my question was, well, how can we use these nudges to begin to reshape our food environment so that the healthy outcome is the default? And, you know, it, it always helps to have, you know, a concrete example or two. And today, when people are looking at uh, obesity, uh, a common approach is to suggest something like a soda tax. And soda taxes are, are pretty popular these days. And, you know, that's not really the approach that I'm advocating in, in my book. I mean, one, soda consumption is at a 30-year low, but obesity is at a 30-year high. So it's probably not the issue uh, when it comes to obesity, you know, despite all the big gulp cups and other things like that. Um, and also in terms of policy, you know, my thinking is that if people who drink soda hate soda taxes and people who tr uh, make soda hate soda taxes, you really want to make sure that that policy intervention is very successful, you know, and it needs to really, really work if everybody's going to hate it. And so far, we don't really have good evidence that soda taxes lead to better health outcomes. You can nudge behavior, but it's not behavior alone that we're trying to uh, influence. We actually want people to be healthier. So, you know, I went and looked for an alternative using just the behavioral uh, engagement. And so, uh, and I also wanted an intervention that had the potential to really scale. And so what I came up with was this idea that in many restaurants today, and I use in, in the book, the Subway, Subway has about 40,000 locations around the world. 7 million people drink, uh, eat there every day. And most of those uh, restaurants offer you free refills. But if you go in and you ask for a, a cup and you're going to get a free refill, they give you a 21 ounce cup. That's enormous. And, you know, we know human behavior. Many people will go get a cup, drink it, and then get another half a cup and leave. And so what I suggest is, well, what would happen if you just gave a 12 ounce cup as the default cup when people are consuming in the restaurant? If they want a bigger cup, you just give them a bigger cup. For most people, they just wouldn't care. You know, it's like you know, they're free refills. I can go back three, four, five times if I want to. Um, and those who want a bigger cup will just get it. So it doesn't really have much of an impact on sort of um, you know, limiting people's choice. They can do what they want. But the behavior is really important because if you get a cup and a half at 21 ounces versus a cup and a half at 12 ounces, the difference between the two is about 12 ounces of soda at 150 calories per cup. Uh, that's about, uh, you know, that works out with 7 million consumers at about a billion calories every day. So, I mean, think about that. Just by changing the default cup size in one fast food restaurant, 
we could potentially reduce uh, calorie consumption by 1 billion calories every single day without limiting people's choice. So that's the kind of thing that I'm looking for. You know, these win-wins, you know, the restaurant makes more money because they give away less soda. So, you know, people are just not going to be as opposed to it as something like a soda tax. Yeah. And those are the kind of things that actually can work because you're not really giving anybody a sense of sacrifice. You know, they're still getting what they want, but you're not, you know, packing in extra. It's kind of like um, McDonald's when they started going from um, a normal straw to this thing that's like a garden hose. <laughs> that it wasn't just giving you a bigger cup; it was giving you a, a, a method to get more of it in you. And 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 how you know, how much is how much of that is a problem too? Well, you know those those are real factors that, you know, if you can drink the soda faster, you will drink more of it. Um, you know, if you're drinking it before it gets warm. And so, you know, those little nudges have, have a big impact, but you know, that's where you can begin to work with restaurants. You know, the idea is not to demonize restaurants for giving you large portions, you know, consumers go to restaurants to give them large portions, you know, restaurants, um, the food they serve is often not the most expensive part of your meal. You know, labor and the real estate cost, you know, are right up there. And then the food is, you know, maybe third or fourth. And so if people want large portions, they're going to give it to them. So what we need to do, though, is we need to help people understand that if I eat two meals for the price of one, that is not good value. If I get two meals and take one of them home for the price of one, that's a fantastic deal. And so how do we make it possible? And, you know, uh, what that could look like is, you know, you go to the Cheesecake Factory and, you know, they generally give you about, uh, you know, double the portion that you know a person would normally eat. And instead of waiting until you finish your meal to see if you have anything left over, um, what if they gave you the option of getting the to-go bag before you, you know, when you get your food. In other words, you have half of your meal put into a bag and you never see it. <laughs> right? Sure. I mean, that's a great deal. And the psychology works with us because the problem with trying to, you know, eat half your meal, like, you know, you probably would do, is that our brain thinks we didn't finish eating. So our brain actually doesn't kick in and tell us it's time to start digesting the food because it still sees half the food on the plate. And so even people who, you know, only eat half the food and they take it home, they will be hungry sooner than if they had never seen that food at all. Yeah, see that and that totally plays into my psychology where I was raised with uh, you know, depression era influences that said you must finish everything on your plate. And that's yep. like built in. I mean, that's like ingrained. So I got to go smaller. Because uh, you know, I'll eat everything there, <laughs> and, so it's, and I don't know how you know that kind of that kind of. Uh, it's one of those parts of the environment and our conditioning and our psychology that really just lends to the problem. Well, what are some of the other solutions that you kind of recommend? Well, you know, there there are solutions sort of at the personal level and then at the societal level, and you know, there are a lot of things that we can do. You know, part of it is just awareness. You know, we need to be aware of. Uh, decision fatigue. And, you know, that's 
should help us to influence when we go to the grocery store or only shopping from a list. Uh, the halo effect, which is that, you know, you put a, a label like low fat on a product and we just assume it's low calorie and high in other nutrients. And so we need to be aware of our tendency. Um, but then there are also behavioral changes that, you know, if you, if you don't have snacks in the house, you probably won't eat them. Uh, if you have to have snacks in the house, maybe they shouldn't be sitting out on your countertops, you know, put them away. Um, so there, there are tweaks we can do to nudge our own behavior. Uh, you know, having smaller plates uh, can be helpful. You know, part of the problem there is that if the plates are big at the restaurant and small in the house, then we never sort of get into the habit of eating off of a small plate. You know, our brain still thinks when the plate is small that, you know, maybe it's not enough food. But if visually we could get restaurants to offer smaller plates, then, you know, then our, it would be consistent. Uh, and then all of a sudden we would just re reframe or in our brain what a normal serving size is. Um, and so there, there are these tweaks that we can all do that will help us in our daily life. But, you know, we really need to take it one step further and take these ideas out into, you know, the food environment so that there's consistency between what we do at home and what we find when we're out shopping. So going forward, how are different organizations or companies using what we've learned about how not to frame questions around food to kind of rethink the way in which people are eating? Yeah, so what we find is that companies and organizations are taking this behavioral science and they're putting it into practice. Uh, you have companies like Google that gives free food to their um, employees every day, but they want them to eat healthier. So they're using the latest in behavioral science to guide them to the healthier choices. You have uh, retailer, grocery retailers in the UK that are redesigning their grocery stores so that people are buying 16% more fruits and vegetables just by changing the layout of the grocery store. And you have you know, food service companies like Compass Group and others that are taking the lessons from Google and putting them into practice in the hospitals and schools and other places where they work. So what you find is that the tools of behavioral science are beginning to gain traction and that organizations are trying to help consumers uh, make better decisions without really uh, you know, forcing them to do anything, but in a way that's hopefully gonna just deliver healthier outcomes. So I'm actually hopeful that we you know, might be able to get on a different track and begin to slow the growth in obesity and eventually get to a point where people are losing one or two or three pounds a year every year and they're not even going to know why it's happening, but it will be because their food environment has changed. Yeah, it's a really good point. I remember hearing once that if you cut out a Snickers bar a week, you know, the number of calories in that in a year is something like 3,500, which is a pound. And if you lose, uh, if you lose just by making these small sacrifices, you can change your at least negate your increases and maybe even help your decreases and so it's those small changes that are the ones that people can live with and you know it actually made me think about uh, i see commercials now for apps on the phone like noom and stuff is that all based on this kind of psychology 
It is. It is. So it's, you know, using behavioral science to nudge us. But, you know, my point is that it's not about small sacrifices. It's about not even knowing that you've done it at all. Because if you eat off of a smaller plate, you didn't sacrifice anything. You feel exactly as full as you would have if you had had the bigger plate. Yeah. You just won't feel kind of sick an hour later because you ate too much. So you, you will actually have a better dining experience. Uh, you look at a company like Starbucks and you go in there and you buy a brownie. Well, studies have shown that the brownies they give are pretty big, that the maximum sort of joy or bliss from that brownie would be eating a brownie that was one quarter the size. Yeah. So some of these changes are not about decreasing enjoyment, but it's actually about maximizing it. It's about getting more with less. <laughs> Yep, yeah, absolutely. Well, it would be um, a shame to not at least touch on biotechnology since you spent so much time with that topic in the Department of State. And what is, um, you know, when you look at when you started in the State Department back in, you know, 2000, early 2000s, compared to when you left after 13 years, did you see the environment in biotechnology change, at least from the consumer side? I did. I did. You know, when I started, we were in that world where we thought, you know, information was going to solve the problem. You know, if, if people are, are worried about biotechnology or about uh, agriculture, that if we share more information, then, you know, we'll resolve the problem. And I think, you know, we all learned that it was not an information deficit model problem where information was going to solve it. And, you know, one of some of the lessons I learned is that Science at the beginning of a conversation really just polarizes the audience. Those who agree with you agree more, but those who disagree actually disagree more. And so, you know, you have to focus on trust, which we've already talked about. And, you know, it's really understanding how people come to believe what they believe and know what they know. And when are people willing to change their minds? And that's a lot of what I learned during my time at the State Department is how to communicate differently on topics to give people the space to actually change their minds. And does do people change their minds? They do. Uh, <laughs> but it's really interesting because uh, most people, you know, if you ask them, are you open minded? Everybody says, absolutely. And then you ask them, well, when was the last time you changed your mind about something really important? And for many of us, it's actually pretty darn hard to remember a single time when we've changed our mind about something important. Um, but it, it's not actually because we never change our minds. It's because we don't like to believe that we believe something different in the past. So, you know, it's actually a coping mechanism. So, you know, think about something, you know, maybe where you believe a certain way today, but a lot of people disagreed in the past. And what we do is if you ask somebody, it's like, oh, you know, did you, you know, used to think this, they'd be like, well, I didn't think that, but many people did. Now, if you actually went back and you looked at what they were saying back then, maybe they believed the other thing too. But we actually change what we believe we thought in the past to avoid having been inconsistent with our older self. <laughs> and so people just don't know that they actually believe things differently in the past in many cases. 
Now, that was a really important part of your book was the, the discussion of intellectual humility. And um, it, it really resonates with me because I can change my mind all the time. And I and everything is a hypothesis test. And even things that are in politics or in, you know, with respect to religion, I've changed my mind. I mean, there's all kinds of things that I'm always willing to do that. And I think I'm definitely an outlier because it's very hard. And I start every one of my presentations about science communication with the same concept. When was the last time you changed your mind about something really that really mattered? And you never find it's very rare to find someone who says, yes, me. You know, it's just some something. And then that's what we're up against when we try to deal with how do we reframe the thinking about food and how we're going to be able to reverse some of the trends that are happening because of the uh, because of the way we consume food and the food we consume. Well, you know, the, the last point you're making comes, you know, to the idea of confirmation bias and, you know, that we all seek out information that's consistent with our beliefs and we discard information that's not. Um, and I think that people need to recognize when they're biased themselves, which is a really hard thing to do. You know, we can spot bias in another person in an instant, <laughs> but we don't very easily see it in ourselves. And when I'm giving presentations, I often point to my own bias and give an example that if I were to read an article that said organic food was more nutritious than conventional, what would I do? I'd ask, who was the author? Who funded the research? And what was their methodology? And that's pretty reasonable. (laughs) Those are reasonable questions to ask. But if the article had said organic, no more nutritious than conventional, what would I have done? I would have tweeted it. Right. Right. I would not have asked about who funded it and looked at their methodology and dug in to see if it was true. And that's what bias looks like. You know, we dig deeper. We scratch the surface. We ask tough questions when we disagree. And we don't do any of that when it's consistent. And so I think it's important for us to have that humility of recognizing that we're just not questioning the things that we believe. We're just questioning the things that we don't. No, very good. That's it's it's a it's a really great way to sum this all up. And really, you know, we just scratched the surface of the topics in the book, especially those around the cognitive errors and biases that we 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 have and we make, and really are at the at the foundation of the problem of the food choices we're making. So, if people wanted to learn more about you or what you do, uh, where can they look? So my website is uh, futurityfood.com, that's F-U-T-U-R-I-T-Y, food.com. I'm on Twitter at uh, Jack underscore A underscore Bobo. Uh, And the book is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, pretty much any place you would find books. So I hope people will uh, give it a look. No, very good. And you also have a really good TED Talk out there. How do people find that? Yeah, so the TED Talk is uh, why we fear the food we eat, and I think probably just uh, Googling it on YouTube would be <laughs> the easiest way to, to find that. Um, it's also in uh, on my LinkedIn profile. Uh, I got a lot of information there if you want to check it out. And if anybody wants to get in touch with me, uh, please do reach out through uh, LinkedIn or some other way. I'd be happy to talk to them. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, you've always been uh, someone I've enjoyed your work, whether it's writing or you know, uh, or the TED Talk was fantastic. And, uh, you know, appreciate a lot what you do. And it was really a pleasure to talk to you today. So thank you very much. 
Thanks for the opportunity. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast as we move towards seven year, well, the beginning of the seventh year and the 300th episode, 1.5 million downloads. So uh, it's it's pretty amazing that it's still going and going strong. And it, I blame it all on outstanding guests like uh, Jack Bobo. So thank you very much for listening. Uh, this is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.